We are continuing this morning uh, with the series uh, looking at Psalms of David that are related to uh, the, the series that we just finished from 1 Samuel. And so uh, Steve read for us uh, the passage that it's related to. And so I want to open us up in, in prayer and uh, ask that the Lord would speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has been preserved uh, all of these thousands of years. Father, that you have gone to the effort of uh, making it uh, available to us, that you have made it so available to us that we have copies in our own hands and in our phones. I pray, Father, though, that you would help us to not take your word for granted. Remind us, Father, that it is your holy word. It is a word that you have spoken for our good, for our feeding. And so, Father, we do ask that you would indeed feed us this morning by your word. Teach us about yourself. Teach us about ourselves and our need for you. I pray that in all that you would glorify your son, Jesus Christ. It is he who we want to worship and praise, for he is worthy of all worship. And so I I pray now that you would indeed quiet our hearts, give us ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, hearts to believe all that you have for us. And I pray, Father, that your will would be done uh, in and through our time in the word this morning. We ask this uh, for the glory of your son, Jesus, and for our joy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it was just about two months ago uh, that uh, our family packed up our minivan with our sleeping bags and other gear, and we headed out west for vacation. Uh, We wanted to take our uh, family vacation before our twin daughters started their freshman year of college. So if you see us moping around, it's because we're two less as we have twin daughters away at school. And I really wanted uh, to take our kids uh, to see the Rocky Mountains. I wanted to be there the first time that each of them saw the Rockies. I love the mountains, right? In college, I I spent a summer working at a a Christian camp near Colorado Springs, and there's just so many things I love about the mountains. Uh, The very first trip that I took with Whitney, my wife, was to Colorado, to the mountains, and that just came up recently we told that story. And when we're there, we love to hike and camp, love to just breathe the clean mountain air, um, the dry mountain air. No humidity, right? <laughs> but even more than the mountains, I really wanted my kids to see the Grand Canyon. And, and since I was a child, the Grand Canyon has been the most amazing and, and you could even say worshipful places that I've ever seen. And I wanted my kids to experience that same awe and wonder at God's beauty and creation. I'd shown them pictures. Nah. I'd made them watch a few documentaries. They were mildly interested. They heard me tell stories of the canyon, even the time when I took mom down to the bottom and barely got her back out. So... But it wasn't until we actually got to the Grand Canyon uh, and they were able to see for themselves. They had a chance to see it with their own eyes, to to smell the trees, the ponderosa pine, to hear the native birds, to taste the dust as we walked a mile and a half into the canyon and to feel the burn in our legs as we came out that mile and a half back up. It wasn't until after they had done all of that that they began to see the canyon with new eyes. They had a a sense of wonder and awe that was their own. In Psalm 34, 
we find that the psalmist, David, is expressing a similar longing to have others experience the same kind of overwhelming heart of worship that he had for God. In the superscription or, or the title that uh, Steve read for us at the beginning, uh, we find out a little bit more about what was going on. It reads, of David. It's a psalm of David when he had changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And so that little bit of information helps us to know that it's connected to that brief time when David was, uh, went to the, the Philistine city of Gath uh, in 1 Samuel that Steve read for us. And I realize that as you're looking there, you're like, wait, the, the king's name is different. It's true. Uh, in 1 Samuel 21, it's Achish. In Psalm 34, it's Abimelech. Um, we think probably that Abimelech is either another name for the king or maybe a Philistine title. But the description is enough that there seems to be no dispute that it's tied to 1 Samuel 21 and those events. And if you remember our time back in 1 Samuel, uh, we read in, in just the time right before that, in chapter 20, that David had been warned by Jonathan, his close friend and the son of King Saul, that Saul was trying to kill him. It had reached a tipping point and it was dangerous, too dangerous for David to stay where he was. And so David immediately departed. He fled for his life. His first stop was at Nob where Ahimelech, not Abimelech, but Ahimelech, the priest, gave him bread and, and the only weapon that he had. It was the sword uh, that David had taken from Goliath, that Philistine giant that David had killed with a slingshot when he was just a boy. And so David, with the bread and the sword, went to seek refuge in the Philistine city of Gath. That was the childhood home of Goliath. And so think about that for a moment. Saul's persecution of David was so vicious that it seemed better for him, it seemed smarter for him to seek refuge in Gath than to stay in Israel. But is it any wonder that it took almost no time at all for the king's servants to recognize David? He was the famous Israelite warrior. I mean, I can't help but wonder that this big sword that David had just said, there's none like it. Even that might have been recognizable. But they said, you know, is this not David, the king of the land? Did, he not sing, did they not sing to one another in their dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. At this point, David was not the king, but he seemed to have quite a reputation. And when David learned what they were saying, he was terrified. No doubt, because if not all of the 10,000 that he killed were probably Philistines. And so now he found himself trapped in the house of a foreign enemy king who knew who he was. Felt like there was no escape. He had fled a king who wanted to, to kill him and ended up in the home of another king whose servants no doubt wanted to kill him. And so the text tells us that David pretended to be insane to get out of the situation. And so with, with his own drool, his spittle running down his beard, it says in 1 Samuel 21, 13, that David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors and the gates and let spittle run down his beard. And amazingly, instead of just killing him, they let him go. So that they drove him out and sent him away. 
So why did I recount all of that? Because this is the backdrop that we find for Psalm 34. It seems kind of a weird story to to write a psalm about, but it really isn't a psalm about that incident. Psalm 34 was not written as a memorial to that past event, but with the hope that readers might identify with the psalmist. The Lord had amazingly saved David from what seemed like an impossible situation. David had experienced the, the power and the grace, the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord in a brand new way. So he was moved to worship. He was genuinely moved in his heart to give thanksgiving. And then David, in the psalm, invites us as readers to listen to his words and to join him in worshiping our Lord and our Savior. And that's my hope, too, for us this morning, that, that through looking at this text, that we'll see the power and the graciousness and goodness of our Savior. That's our main point for this morning, is that the Lord is powerful, a powerful, gracious, good, and faithful Savior. And so, first, we praise the Lord in humility. We praise the Lord in humility. David begins by expressing a heart that is overflowing with continual praise to God. I'm going to reread it again, and I'm going to emphasize some of the words. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. It's it's almost as if David can't help but praise God. He can't stop praising God. It's all that he talked about. Have you ever known anybody like that? Where all they talked about was their favorite subject? It might have been a favorite movie or a band or a TV show, a restaurant, a comedian, their favorite sports team. We love to talk about and praise the things that we love. And I think one of the reasons why we do this is because we want to share our joy with other people. And so that's exactly what we find David doing. In verse 3, David says, uh, David invites the readers to, to join him in exalting the Lord's name together. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is the invitation, really, that David is extended throughout the psalm. I think this is the whole point of the psalm. David is saying, look at me, and I will show you why you should worship the Lord. I'll show you why I worship the Lord. And let me tell you why you should as well. So we, we take these first three verses out of context. And if we just read them um, without thinking anything about what had happened to David before, we might think David's just, he's excited, right? He's pumped. Like the way that you might be if, you're, if your team went to the Super Bowl, right? This is awesome. We got to talk about this. He sounded pretty excited and everything was going all right in his life. So yeah, of course, he's got a lot of happy, clappy reasons to praise God. Right? Have you ever known those? Have you ever been in a place where everything's just happy, clappy? Everything's just wonderful and bubbling over? It's great while it lasts, but... It doesn't last very long. It's not real life. We shouldn't miss David's call in verse 2. For the humble to be glad. For the humble to hear and be glad. David's testimony is that the Lord is worthy to be praised. Not because everything was going well, but because he'd saved David. David's testimony of the Lord's worthiness uh, 
in the midst of a difficult situation. Uh, we read about it in, in verse four, not specifically, but David prayed and the Lord answered, right? That's, that's the pattern. David prayed and the Lord heard and answered. He said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. And then in verse six, David refers to himself as a poor man. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard me and saved me out of all his troubles. And so this is where we have to ask, why does David refer to himself as poor? Well, if we think of his physical uh, situation at that time, he probably was poor. He was probably dirt poor. He probably only had the clothes on his back. Right? He'd been forced to flee Israel, and now he was being sent away from Gath. In fact, this marked the beginning of his time in exile in the wilderness. But I think more likely what David meant in these words is that he was coming from a place of weakness and humility. He wasn't coming from a place of of strength and pride. David was crying out to the Lord in the midst of terror, in the midst of great fear. He learned what the king's officials were saying and and so it says that David, the text says that David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Do you know what it's like to be really afraid? To cry out to God in, in fear, terror. It might, it might be terror of, for any number of reasons. Like none of us likes to be afraid. Fear can leave us feeling helpless and weak and vulnerable, which is exactly what David was. When we're afraid, we often feel ashamed and we want to hide our faces. We don't want to see anybody and we, we don't want to cry out to God. David says something remarkable then in verse five. He says, those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. David was afraid. And yet here he says that those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. I stopped to think about that. Do I know any Christians like that? Do I know any Christians who just, their faces are always radiant, right? That they never look like they feel any shame? I try to think, I'm not sure if I do. I, I mean, do you? I think the imagery that, that David was leaning on, that he was drawing from, was from Exodus. The Exodus account, Exodus 34. Uh, Moses had been up on Mount Sinai after being with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happened? Well, Exodus 49... Uh, I'm sorry, Exodus uh, 34. And so Exodus 34, 29 tells us that the skin on Moses' face shone because he had been talking with God. And I think we might be tempted to think, well, it was probably a sunburn. Let me tell you, these people were out in the wilderness, right? They knew like what, like they all had sunburns, right? They all had been exposed to sun, but this was different somehow. Moses had been with the Lord, and his face was different. It shone differently. I think what David wants to tell us is that we should never be ashamed of coming to God in our weakness and poverty. We should never feel as though we have to hide. Right? The hope that we have, the hope that we have as believers is not founded on our strength. It's not founded on our power, but it's founded on God's strength and his power to save. 
And so when we are weak, David says we should cry out to God, for he's a good God who saves. He's a good God who listens. It's when we come to God in humility that we truly bring him glory instead of ourselves. When we come to him and we're willing to honestly acknowledge our weakness and our fears and our need for him, that's when we find that our boast is in the Lord. David gives us one more reason uh, why we should praise the Lord in humility. That's in, in verse seven. He says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Once again, we're, we're taken back to the Exodus account. Exodus um, 14, we read that the angel of the Lord who had been going before the host of Israel, so the whole nation of Israel, it said that at that moment he moved and went behind them to stand between Israel and the host of Egypt. In other words, the Lord surrounded Israel and protected them. He protected the Israelites from the Egyptians. He encamps around those who fear him. I think of another picture of uh, when Saul was in the wilderness pursuing David. And where, where did David find him? Saul was asleep in the middle of his army. Well, maybe this is a bad analogy because David was able to get right in, but it was only because the Lord had put the entire army to sleep. But Saul had been surrounded by his army. How much more if the angel of the Lord surrounds those who fear him? How much safer are they? How much safer are we? What we find is that David, David in all of this account, right? We, we read about it in 1 Samuel and we think, well, David was a pl- pretty clever guy to think of that way to escape. But that's not how David talks about it. David took no credit for escaping with his life from the king of Gath. In fact, he gives all the credit to the Lord. Right? As David thinks of the way that the Lord delivered him from Abimelech, right, it reminds him of the way that the face of Moses shone after he met the Lord on Mount Sinai. He, he thinks about the way that the angel of the Lord encircled the camp of Israel, protecting them from Egypt at the shore of the Red Sea. As the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, so the Lord delivered David from the Philistines. David David saw himself as being under that same God. And so David points to the testimony of God's work in his own life to encourage and motivate us to humbly praise the Lord. So in our humility, he says, praise the Lord for, look at everything he's done for me. But it's not enough. It really is not enough for us to simply praise God for the sake of another. Right, kids, this is for you, right? You shouldn't worship God just because your mom and dad do. You should worship God because he's worthy to be worshiped. And so David then is about to, to urge us to know God for ourselves. He wants us to find refuge in the Lord's presence for ourselves. Not just because David did, not just because the king did, but he wants us to know for himself. And so the Lord is a powerful, gracious, good, and faithful Savior. So we praise him in humility and we find our refuge in the Lord. We come to verse 8, which is a very familiar passage to us. And David relies upon culinary imagery, right? What he's doing, he's drawing a picture for us, right? He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David's words call out to, to truly experience the goodness of the Lord for ourselves, right? Not just in an intellectual way, but in a way that touches our very senses and stirs up our affections. When Whitney and I were newly married, uh, I had been encouraged by uh, the pastor who uh, discipled me to figure out whatever she loved and encourage her in it. And so Whitney loved to cook and she knew that I loved to eat. Right? And so it seemed like a good thing. So I would look for cookbooks and try and find the best ones and, and give those to her as, as gifts. And I remember her spending hours reading those cookbooks in search of fun and interesting recipes. Right? Kids, this is like the day before the internet, right? when you could find recipes there. Right? This is when you actually had to get physical books. And eventually she would look up. Right? We were sitting, I remember a time, we were sitting together and she looked up and she said, what do you think of this one? And I was maybe expecting to see a picture. There were no pictures. She read the list of ingredients to me. And I gotta tell you, I tried to follow, but I got lost after like the second or third ingredient. I, I just couldn't imagine what she was describing. Wait, did you say this was chicken or beef? Or wait, was this a dessert? Because I, I lost track a long time ago. I had no idea myself. Now, she could look at the page and she could imagine the whole thing. She's nodding her head because do you remember that? Yes. We came to an agreement that she had to show me pictures eventually. But, <laughs> but I couldn't imagine what it would taste like or what it would look like. I couldn't even imagine if I would like it or not. In order for me to fully appreciate that recipe, that meal, with all of its complexities, I had to taste it for myself. And that's what David says that we must do with the, the goodness of God. David's words are an invitation to us to fully experience the goodness of the Lord for ourselves, to taste and see and appreciate the goodness of the Lord, to think about not just a one-dimensional God, but think, well, think about it for a second. Think about your sense of taste. It's not just one thing, right? We can taste sweet and sour, salty and bitter and savory. Our sense of taste is even more complex than those five senses, right? Because the combination of those produces almost an unlimited number of flavors, an infinite variety. And so in the same way, we can experience the goodness of the Lord in so many different ways through the complexities of our own lives. And that's what David is calling us to do. Right? We, we can know the goodness of the Lord because right, he says God is always good. He's always praising him for his goodness. And so we can know his goodness in our times of joy, but also in our times of grief, in our times of hope and anticipation, as well as our times of disappointment and despair. In each of these times, we're able to taste and see different flavors of the goodness of the Lord. We don't serve a one-dimensional God or a two-dimensional God. And David points to the blessing of, of taking refuge in the Lord. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Right? David, at that moment, had no other refuge than the Lord. Right? He had no home. He was heading out to the wilderness where he would have to stay for years. In a way, you could say that it, well, he wasn't distracted 
right? He wasn't distracted by any other uh, trappings of wealth. In our small group leader training this past week, we were talking about the things that keep us from praying. And we said that there were certain things in our lives, things like money and possessions, that can become that we can begin to look to for security. We can look to those things and they can become what we depend on. In a way, you could say that these are the things that we take refuge in. And we may not even mean to do it, but we begin to ignore God. We don't take refuge in him, but in these things. Right? The things of our lives seem to pile up and God seems to be crowded out. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, what are you taking refuge in? What are you, where are you finding your security? Where are you finding your hope, your rescue, your help? Is it the Lord and his goodness or is it something else? If you find your time of worship, this is a, maybe a test. If you find that your time of worship and prayer, I don't mean this sermon. The sermon might be boring. But your own time of worship and prayer and Bible reading, if you find it about as exciting as Ikea instructions, then you need to think. Right? You need to think about what's going on in your heart. And I would strongly urge you to take a look at your heart and, and figure out where you are placing your hope. I urge you to cry out to God just as David did and to ask him for help. Ask him to help you to cultivate a godly desire and a godly taste for his goodness so that you might find your refuge in him. One of the ways that David points to that we can find our refuge in God is by understanding, of all things, the fear of the Lord. He writes in verse 9, he says, oh, the, oh, fear the Lord, you saints, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer uh, want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. When David refers to the fear of the Lord, right, he means uh, you know, holding God in proper perspective and awe. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a source of life for God's people. If you think about it, it was the fear of the Lord that drove all of David's fears away. David connects the fear of the Lord to God's provision. He writes, for those who fear the Lord have no lack. Right? Even, even young lions, right? those that we would imagine would be the most powerful and could take whatever they wanted. Even they suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Remember, David was a shepherd, right? He, he knew what it was like to kill lions with his bare hands, at least by his own accounting. And David, once again, was headed out into the wilderness, and yet he still says, that those who seek the Lord shall lack no good thing. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to lack no good thing? What does it mean to have no lack? And I think it means a few things. The first thing is, if there's something that we need, and you're one of God's children, he will provide it. He will provide it for us. And if there's something that we need, but we don't have it, it may be that it's not a good thing right now. It may be a good thing, and it may be a good thing that he delivers at some point, but not right now. It may be that God is doing something in your heart or in your life, 
Perhaps he's helping to teach you to trust in him more. He may be teaching you about yourself and where you find your refuge. He may be helping you to rely on him and to find your refuge in him alone. We don't know all that God is doing uh, in our lives, but we do know that God is good, that he can be trusted, and that he has told us that he works all things together for the good of those who fear him. So if it's a good thing and you need it, and you're one of God's children, he will bring it into your life in his timing. And as we are changed, right, as we are brought into to seeking our refuge in him, right, we're changed by him. Right? And that's a, lesson, that's a lesson that we teach to our children. It's an encouragement that we should be sharing with one another. We see in verse 11, he says, Come, O children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't think that was like something that David was saying like right before a spanking. David was saying this in the same way that I wanted to take my daughters to see the Grand Canyon. I want to teach you the awesomeness of the canyon. I want you to see it for yourself. And so children, I want you to know, I want to teach you the fear of the Lord. It's not the fear of your mom and dad. It's the fear and wonder and the goodness of the Lord. Verse 12, he says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So what is the main characteristic that, that David points to in all of those things? Well, I think one of the main characteristics that we see is that we take, as we take refuge in the Lord, it changes how we treat one another. As believers, we're to keep from speaking evil and deceit. We're to stop doing that which hurts our neighbors. We're to turn from doing evil in order to do good so that we may act generously and kindly as we seek peace and pursue it. We see Peter uh, pick up these same words in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 as he summarizes the ideal life of a believer. And as we find our own refuge in Christ, as we honor, we honor Christ by living our lives in a way that reflects the fact that we've been saved. We live our lives in a way that reflects his character. As we find our refuge in Christ, we find peace in fearing the Lord. We find that fearing the Lord is a good thing. So David began the psalm uh, with a call to worship, inviting us to join him and humbly praising the Lord based on his own testimony. And then he invites us to uh, find our own refuge in the Lord, tasting and seeing the Lord's goodness, exchanging our fears for the fear of the Lord and living our lives in a way that reflects the character of the Lord. And now David, one last section here, we look and we see that David turns our attention to the Lord's promise of deliverance. So we look at the Lord's uh, promise of deliverance. David begins the final section, or what I'm calling the final section of the psalm, by drawing our attention to his care, to God's care, I'm sorry, for the righteous. And what does he say? He says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. So the Lord sees them and he hears their cry because the Lord's face of compassion and kindness is turned toward them. 
And then he contrasts that with uh, the fate of those who are wicked and do evil. He says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Think about it. Think about the judgment of the Lord. It's a frightening thing. God is against the wicked. God hates sin and, and he sets his face against wickedness. Not only will God not hear their prayers, but he'll completely cut off their memory, the memory of them forever uh, from the earth. And according to verse 21, he says that the wicked will be slayed by affliction and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. I think once again, he's, he's leaning into that Exodus theme. He's thinking of the Israelites, right? And, and the, uh, the pride of Pharaoh who is forgotten, who is destroyed by the Red Sea, all the host of Pharaoh. And this is really, a, this, this talk of judgment and God's judgment is a terrifying prospect. It really is a terrifying prospect for, for anyone who doesn't meet God's standard for perfect righteousness. Right, because what did he say in verse 17? Right, he said, when the righteous, or I'm sorry, I jumped ahead there. What did he say in uh, verse uh, 15? He said, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But what if we're not righteous? The reality is that none of us live up to God's standard for righteousness. And apart from Christ, none of us would be saved. We would all be condemned. But then David turns and gives us hope. The basis of hope. He says, in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all of their troubles. So we have this uh, language of delivering them. And then verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saved the crushed in spirit. And so we ask, well, how, how is there help for then us? How is there help for us who are sinners in those words? Well, the Hebrew expression for brokenhearted and crushed in spirit refers to people who are humbled before God. The pride and the stubbornness in their hearts having been subdued. And that's exactly where David has been bringing us this entire time to humble ourselves in praise before God and to find our refuge in him. And so then the Lord responds by delivering us out of all of our troubles and being a present help in the midst of our afflictions. Verse 22 makes it even more clear when he says that the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And we could end here, except I think that there's some questions that are still floating. And there's also two verses that we didn't touch. Let's first deal with the two verses that we didn't talk about, and that's 19 and 20. Let me read them. Verse 19 says that many are the afflictions of the righteous. And who can say amen to that? Amen. You have afflictions, right? But then we go, wait a minute. Didn't he just say he would save us from all our afflictions? Well, what we miss here, well, let me finish reading it. He says, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The word righteous has been used Two different ways in these verses. Pretty close, but two different ways. And, and it's only, uh, it doesn't matter, but it, 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 as it's translated, right, that word 
uh, for righteous. It actually isn't in that uh, verse 19. It says that many are his afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. What David has done is something interesting that I think it's easy for us to brush right over. In these two verses, the first thing that we notice is that David has shifted his language from the third person plural, they, to third person singular, he. See, instead of talking about all of the righteous, all of the ones whom he will save, he's speaking of one, the righteous one. Many are the afflictions of that righteous one, but the, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He, the Lord, keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Who is David talking about? Well, we have to remember that, that the words were true of David. In a sense, right? He had plenty of afflictions and the Lord delivered him. He'd escaped from Gath. He had no broken bones that were told about. But once again, I think we have to lean into the, the Exodus. Verse 20 is another look into that. Because when, when the Passover lamb was prepared before the people were let go and what they would commemorate year after year, they were not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. If a bone was broken, it was no longer fit for sacrifice. This is the same verse that, that the Apostle Paul quoted in John 19.36 as yet another proof that Jesus was the promised one, God's anointed, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. See, Jesus died on the cross much sooner than the Roman guards thought that he would have. And so while the, the thieves next to him had their legs broken so that, to quicken their death, they saw that Jesus was already dead and so they simply pierced his side. And so on the cross, Jesus escaped the breaking of his legs by the Roman soldiers and the piercing didn't seem to break any bones either. James Hamilton wrote, it is possible that David speaks of himself fully aware that he himself is an installment of the typological pattern that will be fulfilled in the descendant that has been promised to him. David knew that the Messiah would come from his bloodline. So it's quite possible that he understood that, that he represented that. Here again, we see the way that David writes both of the Exodus and of his own experience in ways that will only find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We can trust in the Lord's promise of deliverance because he has made a way. Because God has sent Jesus into the world to die for the sins of all who would believe. The unrighteous, the righteous one for the righteous. Sorry, the righteous one to save the unrighteous. Right? The penalty that was promised for the wicked in this passage for those who uh, have done any kind of evil, right? What's evil? We could, we could name it lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, any other sin, anything that, any other penalty was, uh, that you can think of. All of those were placed upon Jesus so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. So that all who believe in him 
would be counted as righteous. In this world, we will be afflicted just as Christ was afflicted. I think that's the second thing is that we might overrealize, we might look at these passages and say, these can't be true, right? Because, Because I face afflictions. And he said, the righteous won't. Let me tell you, Jesus did. In this world, we will be afflicted just as Christ was afflicted. We will have trouble and countless reasons to cry out to God for help. But if we are in Christ, if he is our refuge, then we know that no matter what we face in this lifetime, Christ has rescued us and redeemed us. He is near to us. He sees us. He hears us. He's with us. And we will be eternally safe because we can trust as it says in verse 22, that the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So as we close this sermon, the question I have is, where is your own heart? Where is your heart toward the Lord? Is it cold? Or does it overflow with praise to him in the same way that it did to David? How are your prayers? Are you crying out to the Lord uh, for help? Or do you find your help elsewhere? Are you looking to him for refuge? Or are you finding refuge somewhere else? Right? In all of these things, I think we are challenged. But perhaps maybe most of all is our heart for others. Right? Do we desire, just as David did, that others would join us in worship? I think the call to taste and see that the Lord is good, to experience the Lord in genuine ways, that should be our heartbeat as a church. It should be our heartbeat as a church for one another as well as those in the community. How might our world be different, our individual worlds might be different, if we reached out to those who are in our lives already with the hope of the gospel? Say, let me tell you what Christ has done in my life. I I just want to tell you about it. And then I want to invite you to join in worshiping with me. And I want to help you in any way that I can to taste and see that the Lord is good in the hopes that you too might find refuge in him. That's my heart for our church. That's, that's what I would love to see our church become more and more of. And as we do, I believe that we will reflect and glorify Christ, that we will honor him and that he will be the one that we will exalt and boast in. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for David's words and for the psalm. I thank you, Father, for the hope that it brings to those of us who, apart from Christ, would be condemned, which is all of us. And I thank you, Father, for the hope that you have given to us who are in Christ that where we find our refuge in you and in you we are secure, both in this life and in the life to come. Father, we thank you that our hope is secure. And so, Father, I pray that you would increase our heart and our love for you, our time of prayer toward you, that we would be more honest in our prayer with you. And I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters, that you would indeed give us a heart for the lost around us, that you give us a heart of of encouragement toward the believers around us. 
and that in all things we would be able to humbly worship you and glorify your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.